Hello and welcome to another IEMA podcast with me, Sarah Mukherjee. So here at IEMA, we recently launched a survey to understand the state of the environment and sustainability profession. We wanted really to find out how it's developing and the challenges or barriers that members might face. And so to talk a little bit about their sustainability journey, I'm joined today by two environmental and sustainability superstars. Both have been awarded Environmental Professional of the Year 2022 by the Society of Environmentalists, and they are Paul Field and Becky Toll. So Paul started out as a coal miner. He's had a load of really interesting career changes and career steps along the way, and he's currently an Environment and Compliance Manager. Uh, Becky is the owner and MD of Crowberry Consulting Limited, uh, enabling sustainable Futures, and that's a sustainability consultancy which was established in 2006. So, Paul and Becky, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Paul, I wonder if I could perhaps start with you. A shift from coal mining to head of sustainability, that is quite a career trajectory. I wonder if you could tell us uh, a little bit about the steps that you had along the way. Yeah, that's no problem. Thank you, Sarah. As a schoolboy, I love geography, and, and one of the employment roles I had in automotive, we had an opportunity to study anything that we like. We, everybody in the business was given a £1,000 grant to study anything they wanted, and I chose to go at the Open University and study open learning environmental studies. And having to do that uh, in a modular fashion with work and shift work, it took about six years to get to the diploma level, uh, and then moved on into health and safety from there that's how i started basically doing what i do now started off as a health and safety officer and working on automotive with a lot of uh, nasty uh, chemicals in the process then moved on for a short period into plastics which i totally didn't like i was only there six months moved into engineering and then i'm currently working for a company that makes um, self-storage systems and i've been given a lot of support from the, the leadership team to to develop a sustainability roadmap uh, along the lines of uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals and hopefully uh, achieve net zero by 2040. See, I mean, that's amazing, an amazing journey. And I wonder if perhaps I could take you back to the beginning of that when you were a coal miner. I mean, so much of the community, I mean, those of us who remember the disputes and the, the challenges that coal mining had there was a, a real sense from those of us you know looking into these uh, mining communities that it was a, an entire way of life that everything was taken up and when that went there was an awful lot else that went at the same time do you think that that sense of community that sense of ownership is beginning to, to come back now or how do we how do we make sure that those communities don't get left behind and future ones as we move to green skills, more green skills. Have we learnt any lessons to help those communities transition as well? Yes, it's quite ironic living in the northeast. It was quite a, a large coal field with lots of spoil heaps. And now if you if you drive around there, the local old colliery villages, those spoil heaps are now nature reserves, which encourage old school children to go and uh, see uh, ducks and swans on pools. So it's it's totally turned around, and I think um, a lot of children these days wouldn't know what coal looks like now. It's 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 part of our our social history, but I think uh, the development of, of local skill sets, I think it's improving massively. I know in the, the local region, um, we're having a lot of 
sites, for instance, in Teesside, where they're developing uh, battery development, green technology for developing energy and offsetting ideas. So for school children, I believe uh, the, the national curriculum is going to introduce a new GCSE in the natural environment. Uh, where hopefully children will be able to pick up those ideas and become environmental specialists themselves as they grow. Yeah, well, natural environment actually brings us very nicely on to to Becky's career, because I know, Becky, you started with Natural England, which is the government's regulator for the natural environment. So could you tell us a little bit about your career history and the steps that you took along the way? Yeah. Oh, thanks very much, Sarah. Lovely to be here as well with with Aima and also with Paul. Nice to chat to you again. So yeah, I basically grew up in a town called Crosby, which is a very well-known beach. So I basically grew up on the beach. (laughs) I lived there as a child. So in the 70s and 80s, that's where I got my kind of obsession for plants and animals and realised I wanted to study ecology. But also I saw a lot of things wash up on the beach, which are very unpleasant and unmentionable. And you kind of think as a child, well, this doesn't look right. You know, all this litter, all this debris, all this pollution. So having studied ecology at University of Sheffield, graduated in 1995, um, I was then introduced to this idea of environmental impact assessment as a way to gain, you know, planning permission and to really focus in and look at not just the environmental impact of what your planning is going to do, but cultural, social, economic as well. So I did a master's in environmental impact assessment and unfortunately graduated straight into a recession. <laughs> so this is a theme, yeah, recessions tend to come around in circles. So I, I was working in Liverpool at the time and I saw an advert for a fully funded MBA, which was like a gift from God, uh, a fully, fully funded anything uh, in environmental management. European Social Fund again back at the University of Liverpool and I thought to myself do I really want to do another you know tier three education but once I'd done that MBA in environmental management it really did open all the doors for me Um, and I think this is a theme you know Paul's just touched on about education about training yourself up but it's lifelong education and you're right I started my career which at the time was English nature now they've switched the res around it's natural England and I kind of talked myself into being their first environmental manager um, because you know here was a regulator that didn't really have processes, policies, procedures in place at that time for their own environmental management. So using ISO 14001, the international standard as a template. And then from there, um, I went off to work for the Co-op Bank, was headhunted to work for the Co-op Group. And the Co-op Group was uh, a great place to work, looked after the environmental management systems, carbon systems, co-wrote their CSR report for about five, six years, saw the light, as I say, in early 2006 to set up Crowbury Consulting. But I think everyone's journey, you know, every step that you take on sustainability is kind of different and, and unique, as is Paul's. But I've always been kind of super focused on trying to help the business world to understand, you know, what are their impacts? What are their aspects? How can they use frameworks and tools like PASs and ISOs and GRIs and UN SDGs to help them manage um, these critical risks and opportunities? And I think that's becoming a lot more prevalent now. So everyone's journey is kind of different and there's a lot of, you know, valid uh, twists and plot turns, if you like, in people's uh, career journey. But I think the education piece has become right up there. We'll probably talk about skills and skills for the future, Sarah, as well. When you were talking about the fully funded MBA, I did a journalism course, which again was fully funded by the Manpower Services Commission, which shows my age. And it just shows, doesn't it, that those courses do 
changed people's lives. I mean, it, you know, it ch- completely changed my career path as well. But we sometimes struggle. I mean, we talk about apprenticeships a lot. And you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts about this, Paul. The, and we hear, you know, from organisations that have really made the most of the levy, they, you know, it changes the way that they view apprenticeships. They get a lot more skills into the organisation. But somehow, there doesn't seem to be the profile around apprenticeships that perhaps there should be. And I wonder, Paul, if you you, know, you have any thoughts about that idea of lifelong learning, which, again, brought you to environment and sustainability. Yeah, Sarah, that's very true. I know as a young man and leaving school, that was the goal, try and get an apprenticeship in one of the big established uh, industries in the north, which was steel making, coal mining and shipbuilding. And unfortunately, people of my age, a lot of those skills of dying away with them there's no younger people now coming up and I, just in local shipbuilding i know um these small groups of companies like there's one at the humber where bespoke skills and making uh, small boats still available but the majority of them now children look at apprenticeships and unless it's an it apprenticeship where they want to be creating software uh, for gaming and stuff there's there's very little interest in the, in the children of today so hopefully as um this new course that's going to be taken in taught to school children, hopefully, even if you just plant a seed in a small number of children's minds about the environment and how they, as a as they grow through their life, can in, influence the environment. Hopefully, they'll pick up on that that opportunity then as well. I wonder if I could ask you both, and perhaps with Paul to start, and then Becky. There's a huge amount of passion in, particularly in young people, around climate change and Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg. And yet, it it doesn't sound from what you're both saying that we're we're really effectively taking that passion and using it to to get young people into sustainability. I wonder why, I mean, maybe, Paul, if I could ask you this first, why do you think that is? I think a lot of highlights have been uh, sports personalities where that seems to be the career focus for a lot of people where they're going to make money really a lot of money really quickly and easily and that's probably one of the reasons why trying to work through the stem ambassador role to become a climate ambassador uh, and and going to local schools uh, whether it be primary secondary or colleges to get across what the world of business are actually doing to try and reduce carbon emissions and become more energy efficient to try and slow down the effects of climate change. And I think this this heat uh, wave we're currently having at the moment, this will become the norm. And places where I know the school holidays are coming up and lots of families will be leaving to go to the Mediterranean, I think by 2050, the Mediterranean will be a place where you're coming up because it's so hot. And the south coast, and it's going to impact house prices and food prices and everything else. So hopefully... Um, Every time you turn the news on, it's talking about the climate, and rightly so, much more than when I was a child when it was never mentioned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and Becky, um, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, we go into companies and advise companies a lot about resources. So, you know, we offer internships, paid internships, traineeships, apprenticeships, and student projects. So we've actually won 
a couple of national apprenticeship awards as well. I won't labour that. But just to go loop back to the student projects and the internships, all businesses can connect with their technical colleges and universities on their doorstep because most of the universities now and technical colleges offer, you know, it could be an undergraduate degree in geography, climate change, or it could be a master's in climate change and sustainability. And these students are looking for projects to work in the local community with businesses to either write their dissertations with them or do, you know, a short, you know, focused student project. And this is basically low cost or no cost resource that businesses can tap into. Give these young people an opportunity to experience, you know, what's it like to project manage, you know, a sustainability programme or a project? What's it like to work with a business on issues like climate change risks and opportunities? So we're always encouraging our customers, our clients to look at who's on your doorstep in terms of, you know, academic institutions, what opportunities career-wise can you offer? And what's really interesting is, you know, we've taken on internships that have then graduated to become, you know, year in industry graduate roles or full-time permanent staff members. So it's like an extended job interview as well, if you look at it like that. So there are routes for the the young postgrads, undergrads, or if they're doing apprenticeships, but it's that whole thing of, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. And I think this is podcasts like this, great, you know, Paul's career pathway, my career pathway, but also that next gen. And I'm a big sort of believer in competency and training and, and allowing people to understand career pathways. And I even have the skills map, which is, you know, fantastic from left to right. You know, this is your journey for the next five to 10 years. You know, if this, if you want to be a CEO or a director, this is how you're going to get there. So, you know, promoting what IEMA do and all the other technical institutes that have skills maps is is super, super powerful. And, you know, you talked about the, the levy there as well, Sarah, the apprenticeship levy. There's lots of big corporates that haven't spent their levy. And in Lancashire, we have the Lancashire Levy Transfer Fund. So we were able to negotiate, Lancaster University paid uh, the £13,000 to Preston's College to allow our digital marketing apprenticeship to do our level three, for example. So small companies can tap into this money to basically get the training element fully funded. But I don't know about the rest of the country, but in Lancashire, there is this Lancashire Levy pot of money. So don't let it just slide back to Westminster. Use it in your local area. And I believe that there is funds for, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah Paul, uh, Coventry University are doing a master's, uh, which I think is in sustainability or climate change. And that potentially could be funded through the Levy Transfer Network as well. So there's routes to continued you know professional development continued education which can in some cases be fully funded which is you know again it's a gift isn't it to have that yeah yeah absolutely so I mean we were talking before that it's such a hot job market at the moment and you know people with the right skills are just you know don't don't open a LinkedIn account because you'll be trampled in the crush of people trying to take you on so how do we get that across as a as a sector to to people who might be interested in either you know as Paul did you know changing sector and and reskilling or taking a sustainability path from a university or or college I think I mean Paul you're a great example there of someone who upskilled reskilled and and you know came into the sector and I think there's a lot of people post pandemic who want to join environmental management as a career or sustainability management as a career or net carbon zero manager as a career and it's entirely possible and I want to encourage anyone that's listening to this podcast to just not 
feel afraid to change your you know direction and and to get those skills competencies and behaviors do the courses whether they're face-to-face or online and get those you know certificates under your belt and then go for those jobs because you know everyone can can change their career uh, direction you know it's not set in stone is it that you have to always work in a certain sector and then for the younger ones who are listening to this you know it's a lot easier now than when I graduated um, to get job roles in this sector but I would encourage uh, again it's about if you're going to do a degree please apply for the internships you might not get one in year one or year two but you should be getting them right in year three do a lot of volunteering you know I volunteered at British Trust for Conservation Volunteers I volunteered with Sheffield Development Corporation back in the day get that volunteering experience because again it's about competency skills and behaviour set so I don't know if Paul wants to add to that yeah um, you're very very right about the volunteering I know uh, when I was still working in automotive, I volunteered for the National Trust to work with one of their estates, uh, Gibstide in the northeast. So the, there's opportunities there where it just gets your foot in the door and you get noticed. And once you've been working in that environment, you can think, you know what, this is a great career opportunity and, and move forward from there. So I totally agree. Yeah, exactly. And I, mean, I was going to, to ask you, Paul, about, I mean, you've, you know, you're a perfect example of someone who has come from a very traditional, very carbon intensive uh, sector and retrained out because there will be people thinking, I mean, particularly at the moment, if you're in a particular age group or demographic or you've done a particular set of things to begin with, you'll think, oh, well, you know, it's such an effort. Goodness. I mean, how can I get from where I am now to a job in sustainability? Because you know, I've got to go jump so many hurdles, but it can be done. I mean, it's, it was hard work, I, I guess, Paul, but you, the, the benefits just outweigh the, you know, the, the hard yards you have to do in, to, to get there. That's true. I mean, um, I remember going into Newcastle City Centre and there was a Friends of the Earth event. It was a huge marquee and there was loads of different uh, NGOs in there as well. So I spent whole afternoon in there talking to people and getting their handouts. And that's probably the starting point when I was working as a machine operator in automotive thinking, I'm going to move away from this and do this. So there's events on all over the country all the time. Um, and even just being involved with local uh, communities with beach cleans, craft workshops, there's opportunities out there that just give you that little taster to see how you feel about it and then hopefully a career will evolve from that. So what drives you, I mean, when you get up in the morning, uh, Paul, maybe I could ask you this first, when you get up in the morning and you're going into work, I mean, what is the thing that really motivates you to to make the world a better place as, as everyone does in this sector? Uh, I remember from being a, a small a small child to, to being a young man, sitting in my garden with my parents and seeing the abundance of different types of butterflies and insects flying around. As a man now in his 60s, I sit in my garden now and I'm lucky if I see two species at all. So from my point of view, uh, I have quite a large family. I've got two children, six grandsons and two, two great-grandchildren. So... From my point of view, I come into work every day and try to use the position I've got in the, for the employer I've got now to do good, install sustainability issues in every department, whether it be from purchasing, production, or when we sell the materials to our customers. So from my point of view, I create uh, environment product declarations 
So our customers and a lot more customers seem to be involved in what are they building their projects with and what are the environment uh, credentials. And I've worked with a, a Swedish um, sustainability organization. I can't pronounce the Swedish word, but basically the acronym's EBVD. And for that, I had to go to Swedish Steel, who we bio steel from, to find out what the chemical content of the steel was, the color coating of the steel, and where it was where they might I know was mined. So all that information is now on a, on a portal in Sweden, where all our Nordic customers can look at the materials we produce, and then they can decide whether they want to use them. So and in Swedish steel, it, they've started a pilot plant uh, to make steel from hydrogen, and it's going to be running at scale in twenty twenty six. So it'll be virtually fossil-free steel, and the large blue chip companies like Mercedes and Volvo, they're like their primary customers. They're they're included in that. But as a secondary small medium enterprise, we are we're going to also be included as well, using this um, virtually green steel for our products, so further reduces our carbon. Wow. Wow. Um, and, and, and Becky, from that little girl beachcombing and spending her time you know, looking at rock pools and looking at the crabs, what still drives you now um, in, your, in your daily life? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, as far as we know, there's only one planet that's got, you know, a breathable atmosphere and it's where we're all sat now, planet Earth, um, until, you know, the astronauts find another one. And I think that's really important. That's our home, isn't it? We all live here um, and we've got to take care of it. That's stewardship for, for the earth, stewardship for your community, stewardship for where you live. And our core values are really, you know, to provide inspiration, intelligence and integrity to our clients around sustainability. And I think the intelligence bit is quite often underrated. We have a lot of customers now asking us for scopes one, two and three, carbon footprinting. They're at day one of this journey ahead of them and they don't understand the jargon, they don't understand the lingo, they're being, you know, missold or, you know, told they've got to do this, that and the other and it's actually not true. Um, we always try and link back to standards such as the ISOs or the PASs or the frameworks like the UN SDGs to give the clients, you know, the opportunity to explore for themselves and to learn for themselves and to try and inspire them on this journey that they've we're all having to go on for sustainability. And don't forget about social value as well because you know, sustainability is those three pillars, you know, your environmental, your economic, as well as your, your people side of sustainability. And social values are being really driven now through government contracts, government procurement tenders. Um, and people are starting to get how everything is connected, you know, going back to my ecology degree. Um, so my passion really is to try to inspire our clients, provide that intelligence and also act with integrity um, so that, you know, if we do our job and leave uh, the customer, they can continue doing it for themselves to up-train them and upskill them in this world. But yeah, we only have one Earth, you know, we only have one planet. <laughs> We've got to look after it, bottom line, you know. Exactly. And, and to that, you know, to, on that point, what would you tell your beachcombing little girl self? You know, what advice would you give her from all your years of experience if you were, if you were thinking about your career in the future? Yeah, I obviously don't do it for the money. You know, I'm not here to become a multimillionaire or anything tough like that. Do it because it's your passion. It's, it's your why. It's what motivates you. What gets you out of bed. Do it because you care. Do it because you, you've got that sense of social responsibility, that ethical, you know, moral compass. Um, and also, you know, as Paul has rightly pointed out, he's got children. He's got grandchildren. You know, it's that next generation. It's leaving 
the earth in a position where, you know, the next generation can continue to live their lives sustainably. And also just enjoy it. We're only here once, as far as we know. So you've got to enjoy your life and have a, a useful and productive life that, as Paul said, do some good with your career. Give back to your local communities, sponsor organisations and give people internships and student projects and apprenticeships. And if we all did a little bit more of that, we'd get, you know, to, to a better place quicker and faster, wouldn't we? Yeah. And Paul, I mean, I guess the same question to you. And if you look back on you and your early career in the mines, you know, doing the job that your previous generations had done, I mean, what advice would you give your younger self about your future career? If I go back to being a young person, I'd probably fall back on what uh, most health and safety people would say, ask why for five whys and try and drill down why do you do this and why do you do that and try and get to the to the root cause of issues because um, I think if the adult people when I was a child you asked them those questions they would become quite flummoxed and think why do we actually do that and why don't we do something different and I think the generations we have now and it's fantastic to say yeah uh, the younger children of today are uh, making a difference and asking their peers why can't we do it a different way because that is what we have to do we cannot continue abusing the planet the way we have and using finite resources uh, as those that last forever because they won't yeah i don't know if that answers that question it really does and i'll ask you just one more as well on this so we ask all our guests um are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future i mean we should say that we're recording this on what could well be the hottest day since records began and most of Europe is even hotter and you've already mentioned uh, Paul you know the, the changing temperature with that all in mind are you an optimist or a pessimist oh, Paul I'll ask you that first I'm an optimist I think human ingenuity will get out get us out of this problem it's just forcing our peers and and the people who make decisions in government to actually listen and do it rather than talk about it and Becky I would say optimistic. Um, however, caveat that technology will get us so far, but there's always the people, the human interaction, and that's where culture change, culture change programs, coaching and mentoring programs are going to be massively Im- impactful and influential across all uh, organisations, public sector, private sector. So technology will get us to a point, but you've got to change the hearts and minds. You've got to bring the people with you and that culture change program. So that's what I enjoy about my job is taking people from like the zero to the 10 in terms of sustainability management scale. But yeah, optimistic, definitely. We, we have to be, don't we? <laughs> oh, exactly. exactly. And, and with that in mind, uh, and Paul and Becky, thanks very much. Do stay with us because we're going to be uh, now talking to Tom Pashby. Welcome, welcome, Tom, to the podcast, to the podcast family. Uh, you're IEMA's digital journalist and you're going to be rounding up some of the topics in the environmental news. So, Tom, what's caught your attention this month? Yeah, uh, I'm a bit worried that I'm going to bring down the tone because of the different types of headlines I'm going to be talking about. So the the four top ones that I've picked out are extreme heat in the UK, as you just mentioned, Sarah. UK set to see its first a record-breaking day of heat in the UK today. Drought in Europe, but particularly in Italy, and how that's affecting food exports and the leadership of the Conservative Party and the next Prime Minister and how they have been speaking about their environmental priorities and their support for net zero, which obviously is a 
legal that has legal standing in the UK and also we recently had second reading of the climate and ecology bill in the House of Lords which passed its second reading. I guess as we were talking about the connections and Becky was saying everything's connected those are all very much connected aren't they and the point about food exports I mean this is another kind of sleeping giant that has been exacerbated by the geopolitical situation but this this idea that there's just you know there's an infinite supply of food that we just have to keep pushing around the world to make sure everybody's fed is that model's being challenged isn't it it is and that as you said there's the geopolitical factors as in russian interference in exports of ukrainian cereal crops but also obviously in places like Italy where pasta and olive oil exports are going to be hit quite dramatically in the short term but also probably in the long term because of the impact on soil health which is only going to get worse as climate change expands. And a little bit perhaps if you wouldn't mind sharing with us Tom about the the House of Lords bill. Your thoughts on what that looks like and how that helps us to, to move to that sustainable future? Yeah, sure. Part of the reason why I thought it was interesting to talk about is because it's the climate and ecology bill. And it's specifically about trying to make explicit the interconnections between the climate and ecological emergencies and the fact that it has cross-party support. So it got to second reading in the House of Lords a couple of weeks ago, and it's been supported by a group called Zero Hour. And in the House of Lords, it was proposed by a peer called Lord Reedsdale, who's a Liberal Democrat. But when it was debated, it had fully cross-party support, including from from a backbench Conservative peer. Yeah, but as you were saying, all those things are interconnected that I just mentioned. And I think that the CE bill is... Well, it's a great example of what could be done by government to support more joined up policymaking in response to the climate and ecological emergency. And the Conservative candidates that you mentioned, there's been an awful lot on social media about the this being a big gap in uh, the, the conversation uh, at any of the debates or the hustings and everything else. I mean, do we have any clarity on what, if anything, the Conservative, current Conservative candidates are, are thinking about net zero and sustainability? If you'd asked me this, I think, two days ago, I would have said no. <laughs> but yesterday or day before, um, all five of the then candidates had signed up, had just signed up to the Conservative Environment Network's net zero pledge. So they've all agreed to stick with the government's position, which is to support a net zero in the UK by 2050, which is what Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, put into law. And also last night, there was a hustings, last night being the 18th of July, there was a hustings hosted by Alok Sharma in the House of Commons, I believe, where all the candidates discussed how they would approach net zero. So it's not completely missing from debates, but it is significantly absent. If you watch any of the debates on TV, people have been a lot more focused on other things. I'd say the most serious thing that people have been focused on is tax cuts, which is sort of funny, given that the Conservatives have been in power for, well, over 12 years. No, just just 12 years. Yeah, whereas the climate and ecological emergency is something that's happening today and there needs to be significant shifts if we're to deal with it properly. Brilliant. Tom, thanks ever so much. Uh, Paul and Becky, any thoughts on the on the environmental news this month? 
Yeah, I think what Tom's picked up on there is something we talk about a lot, which is compliance underpins everything. Um, you know, legislation does matter. If you take ESOS, SECAR, like you say, the the amendment net fifty, you know, net zero by twenty fifty order, and once something is put into legislation and the rules are there, it's black and white. This is what we've got to do. This is what we've got to do it by. It does galvanise both public and private sector and supply chains as well, uh, Tom and Sarah. So. You know, if if the the bill does go through, and there are you know quite clear do's and don'ts for everybody to follow, you know that will will support, like you say, that this whole society almost you know paradigm shift to being a more sustainable society, and it is part of again the land we work in ISO. You know, compliance uh, is is one of the core clauses across all of the different um, standards that we work on. But yeah, you know, leadership matters as well, uh, no matter what your colour of colour of government is. Um, having a leader that's engaged and connected with these issues. And as Tom mentioned, you know, we're talking about food scarcity, you know, water scarcity, uh, you know, the supply chain scarcity, which is a real and present issue across a lot of sectors right now. But could this spill out into the future into other conflicts, um, which has been predicted for, for quite a while? So it's frightening uh, what, what potentially is coming down the tracks if we don't all work together. But the reason I'm an optimist again, Sarah, is, you know, you look at the Montreal Protocol, you know, which which kind of phased out the ozone depleting substances, um, you know, back in the sort of 80s and 90s, you know, that has worked. Uh, the ozone layer has healed itself. There was a report by NASA out, I think it was 40 years to the day um, when, when the ozone layer was, it was discovered that it was in massive trouble. So, you know, we, we can heal issues. We can, you know, work proactively and collaboratively and cooperatively together across nations. We can't we have shown that we can we can solve these issues, but it does require like heaps of effort, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And and Paul, I mean you mentioned some of the amazing work that you've done in Sweden and worked with partners. Do you think that we need regulation? Does it does it play an important part in actually getting people over the finish line in terms of these important issues? I think so, yeah. I think our political leaders and our business leaders need to realise it's not about scoring points or, or business leverage. Sustainability is something we all have to do to make sure that future generations survive on this planet. And for some businesses, uh, they have to be, uh, there's got to be legislation that makes them do that. Yeah, much, much like the oil industry and the gas industry, uh, a lot of those companies now, like Shell and BP, are in are doing renewable energy now, and that that is the way forward. I think uh, previous cases where there's been huge spills in oceans and they've had huge fines, I think the legislation is the one is the tool that makes large businesses change track. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I mean, Paul and Becky, what a brilliant conversation and how many, so many insights about your career paths and the paths that others could take. And Tom, thanks very much indeed for highlighting four really, really important issues in uh, the month's news. So that's about it from us. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do subscribe to hear the latest episodes. Don't, don't miss a beat. Uh, and don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, at IEMANET on Instagram, at Visit IEMA, and on Facebook for all those up-to-date news, views, and comments from IEMA. From us, thank you so much for joining us and see you next time. Bye.